speak the charm of make charm of make charm There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy Podcast featuring Reverend Eric. Join me on an exploration of the practice, philosophy, and history of the occult, esotericism, and the paranormal. Welcome back to this special episode of the podcast. I'm here today with Thomas Nagovin, who's the director of the Century Guild Museum of Art and the author of Le Pater, Alphonse Mucha's symbolist masterpiece and the lineage of mysticism. Welcome to the podcast, Thomas. Thank you so much for having me. So who is Alphonse Mucha? Alphonse, you know, and his last name is pronounced a million different ways, depending on where you're from. I'm going to say Muka. Okay, sounds <laughs> Alphonse, good. I might which is switch. <laughs> French or Moravian, but Alphonse Muka was was the leading proponent of Art Nouveau, which was an art style from the late 19th century that was based in the idea that nature was the most powerful form of art. You know that what was occurring naturally was. Uh, more dynamic than anything a human could create. And it grew out of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, It was a a movement of artists that were were feeling that man was disconnected from nature. And they were attempting to use their lines and furniture and jewelry and everything to inspire a reconnection to nature. And out of all of those artists, most human beings if you show them uh, a picture of Alphonse Mucha, they'll immediately recognize the style. He was the the quintessential Art Nouveau illustrator. Yeah, he did. Um, he did like some of those uh, like absinthe advertisements and stuff like that that are kind of iconic of of the Art Nouveau movement, aren't? Didn't he? Yeah, he did a lot of. You know, if, if you think about stone lithography, was a relatively new invention at that time. And the people that had the most money were companies like liquor companies and large cabarets and things like that. And so the people who were putting money into making posters were the kind of products and events that you just mentioned. And uh, Alphonse Mucha was the go-to person for, I mean, I'm, I'm in my head getting distracted thinking about Sarah Bernhardt, which is a whole other. Sarah Bernhardt was basically like the most famous woman performer in Paris. Mm-hmm. She discovered Muka. He was doing her posters, and that's what rocketed him to stardom overnight. So, yes, he, and at that point, that's when, whether it was biscuits or uh, alcohol or anything, people were clamoring to have Muka do their advertisements. But there are a lot of people that did Art Nouveau. It was a very, very large movement. He's just the one that was the most famous of all of them. Did he kind of define the style or did the style predate him? Like his sort of, I, I'm trying to figure out like how uh, to really talk about the style, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like realistic line art with color fill. I, I'm not really, how, how would you really? It was. It came out of Japanism. There was a gallery hmm. called La Art Nouveau uh, that a man named Bing had, and he was bringing things over from the Orient and a lot of the artists in Paris were connecting to that aesthetic of nature in a stylized form. 
meaning, you know, like Muka, there's a, a quote in the book where he talks to a reporter and he's saying, look at you, look at that beetle, for example. You just see a beetle with horns. I look at those horns and think those could intertwine into a repeating pattern for a mural, you know, for a freeze. And so that just, you know, when you dissect it, the plants are super, you know, hyper enlarged. The hair is very stylized. Like it's a very, I mean, something for someone who's not familiar with it is look at psychedelic rock posters because they were very inspired by Art Nouveau. And so the movement did predate Muka, but then he quickly became the most crystallized example of it just because his work was so extraordinary. And he hated the term Art Nouveau because he believed that art was eternal and could never, by that definition, be new. So even though he was who everyone on the planet defined as the quintessential Art Nouveau artist, he refused that title and uh, refused to be associated with the movement. But he has no choice at this point. So (laughs) it's it's, it's visibly Art Nouveau, but he just, you know. He didn't view himself as a symbolist or an Art Nouveau artist or anything. He was, and, you know, not to get too far off tangent, but I think he was working so feverishly that the ground that he was paving, he probably didn't even realize until years later how many people were were kind of picking up his crumbs and running with it. Like when you read about like the Beatles or something and you realize, wow, their entire body of work was in such a small amount of time. Mm -hmm. I think like that kind of a thing. So the reason that Muka is sort of relevant to, you know, the topics on on my podcast, though, is he was a really kind of like devout Catholic in kind of like a mystical sense. And that sort of element was really central to some of his later work and or his, I guess his middle work or whatever. So can you tell us a little bit, you know, like Le Pater, what is so striking and special about it? Well, I mean, first of all, like I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Everybody that I grew up with grew up Irish Catholic. So for Alphonse Mucha to grow up in Moravia, which is in what's now the Czech Republic, in the 1860s, like the the Catholic Church was inescapable. So it wasn't abnormal that he would be playing violin in the choir and all of these things. So he was, uh, as, as was customary in that region at that time, he was very devout. And he did hint in in a letter to his wife, he was talking about that he almost wasn't sure if he liked the church, if he liked the idea of the mysteries because of the church, or if it was the, I'm I'm, I'm getting this completely backwards. The point that he was suggesting is it wasn't necessarily the church that he was reacting to, but the sense of mystery. And so as he became older, he met August Strindberg, there was a creamery in Paris where he lived uh, above the restaurant, and they would have kind of these salon meetings, like Paul Gauguin was one of the people who was regularly there. So he started getting introduced into these more esoteric metaphysical ideas. And so then he shifted away from the more traditional Catholic ideologies into these sensibilities that were much larger much more sophisticated and because Muka really was head and shoulders above everyone else at the time it's one of those things that as an art historian I can look at and it's like why was he just better and then when you discover 
his interest in sacred geometry and hermeticism and, and as he became a mason and all of these things. You think, okay, well, this is why he's so good because he's not just drawing. Like every millimeter of what he's doing is so informed by these completely intense levels of harmony and what he's what he's doing is so i mean i already said informed but i guess that's really the best word to repeat and so when he was doing something like a beer poster the things that he just took for granted is that he was heavily uh you know he was familiar of course with with all of the great esoteric writings and of course very educated in sacred geometry and so he had a, a four or five year run where he was the darling of Paris, world changing, completely defined the Art Nouveau movement. And he had at that point developed enough leverage with his printer that he said, I want to do something personal. And by 1899, he, his work, if he made a drawing, they would put it on calendars, they would put it on tins, they would put it on silk tapestries, they would just do everything with it. And he said, I want to make this, but the only criteria is that I want to make 510 copies and then the plates have to be destroyed. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And so he did it. And it was also in conjunction with the World's Fair approaching Paris. So that is the first place where they were exhibited is the World's Fair in Paris in 1900. But so what he created was something that had absolutely no sense of commerce. It must have looked completely insane to most people who were familiar with his work. It's, you know, these prayer mandalas with verses from the Lord's Prayer, and everything is deeply, deeply coded. Uh, he created all of these sigils that are referencing, you know, like the Cathar hammer and all of these things that I, I even remember seeing in Mooka books where they were referring to these as images that Mooka made up. And it's mm. like, no, the eye of providence. It's like, you know, but it's just like, it, it just shows how much those things aren't prevalent in the public consciousness. But so he, he made that and it wound up being, I can't say wildly popular because they only made 510. So they were gone immediately. They were sold immediately. But the artworks toured the world, and um, he was celebrated by royalty. And, and from that point, he slowly moved away from graphic design and into painting. But, you know, that's a whole other... I'm trying not to just ramble because I could go for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Any pauses you're hearing from me or be like grabbing the reins, being like, all right, I got yeah. to figure out how to make this succinct. Well, let's talk a little bit about what drew you to MUCA. You have been involved in art history for a long time and you're in this museum and all this kind of stuff. But And, and MUCA is sort of part of, uh, I guess, our cultural, I don't know, art sense or whatever, since his style is so strongly associated with Art Nouveau. But what uh, drew you personally to MUCA and how did you come across uh, Le Pater? So when I first discovered Art Nouveau, I remember being in a, in a bookstore and there were two books that I found and one of them was Art Nouveau jewelry and it had this like Lalique bat or something. I don't remember who the maker was, but it was an iridescent three-dimensional psychedelic looking carved bat. And I just, you know, the whatever I was, you know, 
18 year old in me just completely lost my mind. And then I remember seeing a book uh, that was an overview on Art Nouveau and it had all of these curvilinear lines and all of these iridescent ceramics and glass. And, and it reminded me of what, like, like things like A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs and, and all of these otherworldly imagery pieces. Well, so what, what I found out later is that those artists had been influenced by Art Nouveau. So I wasn't making a stretch. There's a reason why when you look at a 1912 painting for an Edgar Rice Burroughs book cover, that it feels Art Nouveau because they were, they were looking at Art Nouveau. Mm-hmm. And so I developed that connection. And then I wound up um, eventually working for a poster gallery uh, and then getting very into specifics of the artists. And then of course, knowing Mucha. And when I would read about Mucha, they would always mention Le Pater, but they never pictured it. It was always mentioned in books just as, you know, his rarest work. And I was at an art show once and someone had one plate and it was this woman in, in a white gown floating surrounded by all of these demons. And it looked like just the craziest pulp drawing from the thirties that you'd ever imagined, but just better. Like the line work was so good. And I, it, I knew that it was Mocha and I bought it and uh, just lived with that for years and just would constantly marvel at it. Uh, And then, you know, again, all of this is pre-internet and then wound up coming across a complete set. And then in looking at the complete set, it was just, I, I felt like my head couldn't even get around it. And it took, it definitely was something that kind of sat on the sidelines for me for a long time. Like a lot of the comings and goings of commerce are based around champagne posters and vases that look nice in an entryway. Uh, but La Pater was just something that sat, you know, on a secretary in my house and that I just kept coming back to and kept uh, spending time with. And I, I probably lived with it for 20 years before I started to write the book that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't feel that I was ready before that. There were just too many things where I would look at them and not really understand. Like, why are there floating eyeballs in the background? Do you know what I mean? Like, I just knew that there was coding in there that I didn't get. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how how was uh, how was Le Pater originally um, published? So you keep talking about it as plates. Was it done as um, like a series of uh, prints, or was it originally done in a book? Because it has sort of like an illustrated manuscript quality to it, with the lines yeah. of the Lord's Prayer and stuff. Can you? Maybe They're, describe the contents for people who they haven't did seen it. it as a folio, and he did. He broke the 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 prayer into seven verses, and he did a title page and an amen plate, and then for each of the verses, for each of those seven, he did like a prayer mandala. Then he did an illuminated manuscript page with his interpretation of that verse. And then he did a sepia illustration that's like a post-apocalyptic. It's, it just it doesn't exist in this universe. And as we get into, you know, as I'm saying this out loud, in the, in the uh, 
our Father who art in heaven, there is the eye of providence in the sky. As you start to get into like, give us the stair daily bread, there's like a gigantic black woman with rivers of milk coming from her nipples that's nourishing like all of mankind huddling in loincloths. And so the Czech uh, version, there is a Czech edition that came out. They had to censor this because a lot of Mooka's writings didn't credit God, like in the traditional sense. Oh. And so, in the expanded edition is I am including what the censored versions are. And I'm reading them and they're, they're hilarious because it's basically Mooka's take on it was almost like God is an unknowable. And in the Czech version, they're like, no, no, no. God is a man with a white beard on the throne. Like it's very, <laughs> it's very traditional. And very- <laughs> um, so then, so then it was published. Well, I guess what I'm wondering is, was it published as a book or it was published as like, was it? It's a full book. Like it, when okay. you, when you got it, it would have been, uh, they would have been, they would have probably like, it depends on, what normally happened is the way these things came out is that they might have had some attachment on the left side. They could have been loose. They would have been wrapped in a paper folio. Mm. Very, very customary at that time is you would then take these loose pages to your private binder. And so if you look at, you know, 30 versions of Le Pater in people's libraries, none of them look the same. And that's the reason. It's just because it was buying a book like that at, at that time is completely different than what we think today. Mm-hmm. So they were, and they were also printed separately as art plates. It's not published like a book. Um, they utilized lithography. They utilized letterpress. Um, there's engraving techniques. Like every part of it is incredibly. Uh, he used every favor he had with his printer to get this done. Okay. Like it's, it, you couldn't, you couldn't do it in any way that would have been profitable. You just put like, it would have cost too much to make because they put too many different elements in it. So even the, even the crafting of the, the physical plates or the physical collection was pretty exquisite. intense and exquisite. exquisite. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Like that's, uh, when you look at stone lithography, one of the things that's really beautiful is that there's a, you can get some striations from the stone. You, there's some elements that feel a little bit organic, but the thing that's overarching is that it sits somewhere between being a watercolor and a silk screen. Mm-hmm. So when you take that and then you add to it, say there's text on there and then they're putting uh, you know, like a foil stamping layer on top of it. It's just layer after layer of things that each one unto itself would be magnificent. Hmm. And so, yeah, it's very, it's, it's equal parts rewarding to see one in person and then distressing that our technology hasn't improved to a point where we can have this. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, better, yeah. we offset printing now it's like oh man 
how how uh how long do you think how many how many hours of work do you think it would have taken to produce uh like one print like one full print of uh, lipasa well they printed the whole thing in one day are you kidding <laughs> yeah the whole thing was print i mean but this was champenois was probably it might have been it was one of the top 3 printing houses in paris and they devoted their entire facility to the, the creation of this and it was printed on December 20th 1899 uh, and you know I'm speculating but I imagine that you know things were printed in one part and then moved to another part of the building and it was just kind of a rotating mm-hmm. thing and all hands on deck and that's another thing too is that I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how to articulate this when you look at, like, here's a really good example. Like, when you look at engravings, and they're so, so well done. And it wasn't even the painter who did it. You know what I mean? Like, you look at an engraving of a painting or something. The skill set of the artisans and craftsmen at that time was so, the, the lowest person on that totem pole is so head and shoulders above what anyone can do today. Mm-hmm. So they did this book in one day it's like the the hands that were on deck for that would have been you know the the highest paid lithographers and engravers and everything you know like i'm sure the plates were made in advance but right right it would have been a whole (laughs) house full of just incredible craftsmen and artists working on this Uh, like all pulling together to make this single single thing it's kind of staggering to think you know i mean just knowing that they did it all in one day is is one thing but yeah like when you think of the amount of talent and the amount of skill that they had to pull together to to pull that off it's just i mean i'm imagining that the boss said yeah yeah we can do this but tomorrow we got to get back to the champagne posters oh i know like <laughs> <laughs> it was probably like listen i'm gonna do this thing for you but you got to draw this for me. I mean, in fact, he had a terrible contract. You know, he signed a long-term contract with this printer being basically a nobody. And then in that five-year period, just had made the guy so much money that Mooka did have leverage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that the publisher was happy to do it, but he certainly wasn't in the business of making things that he was going to have to destroy the plates at the end of the day. He was in the business of making things that could keep making money. Right. That makes sense. So then this, there were only 510 copies printed of Le Pater. And um, do you think it, it seems like it kind of fell out of the public eye or it kind of fell out of public awareness. Like you didn't see yeah, I, I think up until up until your book was published, I never really heard anybody talking about it. Yeah, it's um, yeah. <laughs> I so, mean, I, so what happened? Like, why why did it go away? Was it because it was bought up by like all of these people who could afford, you know, the wealthiest of yeah. books, and then just stashed in private collections? That is exactly correct. Like, huh. there aren't in. Like, there's a reason why, like, if you meet someone who's an art collector and they say, oh, I have a Picasso, 
It's like, yeah, you and 350 million other people. Cause the guy on his deathbed was signing blank pieces of paper so that his <laughs> heir could make more lithographs. And, and when you look at something like, you know, a German expressionist silent film poster, or you look at like, and I use that as an example because like Germany uh, obviously was completely decimated. The Nazis were burning all that kind of stuff. It doesn't exist. So there's not really, unless it's in a museum, it's not something that you just randomly see. And so with this, with Le Pater, just as, as an example specifically, everybody can look at his posters and agree that that's just a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. You look at one of those posters, they probably printed 10 or 20,000 of them. And so every month, somewhere in the world, one is coming up for sale at auction. There's no art show like anywhere in the world that has turn of the century art that doesn't have MUCA posters. Hmm. But it is entirely possible that you could be collecting Art Nouveau for 20 years and have never seen a copy of Le Pater. They only made 510. And think about how many were destroyed. You know, like we're, we're isolated in America, but, you know, two world wars. And especially mm-hmm. like in the area where Mucha's homeland was, the Czech Republic, like that, they were decimated during World War One. So, I mean, I would be shocked if, if there were 200 of them that still remained. So that's to answer your question. That's why it's just people hadn't seen it. It was discussed academically. But, you know, the opportunity to actually have a complete set that you could study was not anything that that had occurred before we did the exhibition that we did that led to the book because we did the exhibition and I thought it was like we were getting close to where I knew we were going to close the physical space for our art gallery and um, I thought you know this has always been my favorite body of work and so we're going to show it just to have the ability for people to see everything and we did a Kickstarter for the, the exhibition catalog and people reacted really well. And I realized that it wasn't just me doing something for, um, you know, for my own entertainment, that mm-hmm. there really was no there. And so that's when I realized that there would be an audience for us to do a version that instead of making a little eight and a half by 11, you know, 36 page exhibition catalog that we really could do a book and reprint them to scale and be, and just be able to recreate that experience for people like on a global sense to be able to really sit and look in detail, uh, at the work. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I mean, you think it was done. I agree with you. Like, it's, you know, yeah. it's, but they just, nobody had done it. There not, weren't enough out there. How many, uh, how many full copies have you seen? I've seen, like, just between seeing things come up at auction 
and ones in person, I probably have seen maybe around 20. Wow. That's not many. Yeah. I mean, like if you think about a MUCA beer poster, like I've seen 20 this year, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, much less in the last 25 years, you know? So yeah, I mean, but probably, yeah, probably around 20. Hmm. Wow. That, it seems like that's the sort of thing that would kind of be like your, I mean, cause I mean, I can tell both in your writing about Muka and the way you talk about it, that this is like, this is one of your passions. Like I can imagine, do you, do you cuddle with your lip hotter at night or do you keep it someplace? <laughs> <where> you can? <laughs> do you keep it someplace uh, where you can see it all the time? <laughs> I, uh, you know, it was, um, It's not, I'm, I'm kind of at a point where the things that I, um, the answer is no. <laughs> you know, to me, to me the, the book that I wrote is more important than the artifact itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason is because, um, I think that that the message is more important than the object. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I was not able to afford to keep the full set. Uh, and part of that is, you know, in looking at, you know, would I rather have that or would I rather sell it and be able to have the time to write a book like this. Oh, the dis- that makes sense. Is insert like one of them feels like hoarding and the other feels like giving. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do know what you mean. Well, I think let's talk a little bit more about your book. Um, you know, uh, I was, I mean, we were talking about it before we started recording. Um, so I'd like to describe it. It's a, it's a folio sized, a uh, beautiful, like green leather bound, incredible art book. That's probably what, like, hundred and twenty pages or so. And uh, uh, it's like two hundred and forty. Two hundred and forty. It's hard to tell scale because the book <laughs> is so enormous. It's got gilt it's, edges. It's. Uh, I don't have it. I don't really have any space big enough to like lay it out comfortably. So I. Think it's I 24 pages. Yeah. Actually, it is gorgeous. It is possibly. Uh, possibly the most beautiful book I own. Let's just say it is, because then I can tell people that you said that. Okay. I all right. All right. That's cool. Let's say it. Uh, it is the most beautiful book I own. It is gorgeous, and I have some really pretty books. Um, but uh, you know, so so like the the book contains sort of uh, you know a biography of uh, Muka. It contains lots of incredible prints of it, his artwork, uh, and it's not just Lipater. You've got like the stuff from his uh, what is it Czech epic um, series that he did. The uh, Slav epic. The Slav which is epic. What he, yeah. Yeah, and then also um, you have a lot of his artwork as his art posters. Uh, some of his sort of like preliminary sketches for Lipater, which is incredible. Where did you find that stuff? Those were in a museum mm-hmm. in Prague. Uh, and I thought that it was important to make the definitive uh, the definitive Le Pater book. Mm-hmm. And 
So uh, I did track down uh, his preliminary sketches. And the thing that is, is, I mean, to me, kind of even more important is inside the book, there are, like, he designed jewelry uh, for his Masonic Lodge um, certificates. And then even preceding that, the we kind of start with Albrecht Durer as really being like the first rock and, you know, the first art star. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, art. for engraving, for printing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had to, I had to come up with a reasonable starting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could, to- I totally, I, I, I loved Albert Durer. He's one of my favorite artists for sure. You know, just. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to look at his work and not, Yeah, but we only, you know, we touch on him for one page and the point is just to kind of really, really quickly take people through, um, Albrecht Durer, you know, Giordano Bruno, Jacob Burma, like all of the, you know, like the, the friar artworks for Jacob Burma's work, for example, there's so, I mean, they're all symbolism. Mm-hmm. Like that's all it, just like, you know, these maps of consciousness. And most people, when they're looking at something like Le Pater, would think, oh, we have to look at this through an Art Nouveau lens. But that's not the lens that Muka was approaching this with. Like, he was looking at this coming from these hermetic traditions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was the hardest spread in the entire book for me was the two-page spread on sacred geometry. Like breaking that down to a two-page graphic and text, um, that was the part where I thought my brain was going to start leaking out of my ears trying to get that small. (laughs) But if you don't understand that, you can't understand why Muka was making the decisions he was making. So all of that preface, my point is just that it's not just about, oh, let's reprint these artworks it's it's trying to help you understand why he did what he did um so that by the time you get to the chapter of his artworks um you're very uh artfully educated in the specific things that will help you understand what he's doing yeah, that makes sense. I liked how you, uh, you know, in particular, um, you sort of drew, drew uh, some parallels between Muka and uh, William Blake, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, not only they were both European. Like, how weird is that? Yeah, that is really weird. I was. I mean, <laughs> I don't think Blake. I don't know if Blake ever went to Moravia, but he was part of the Moravian Church in England. And yes. Um, and he, I guess, what he died probably like sixty years before Muka was born, or something like that. But there's this um, kind of parallel feeling between the way that their like spirituality uh, and their sort of like mystical vision influenced their art, even kind of like yeah. you know that weird flowiness of Blake's um, that that kind of flowing organic nature of like Blake's artwork and the and the color palette he used and stuff. It it seems. Like maybe Muka, I mean, I'm sure Muka must have seen it, but it seems kind of evocative. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I 
Yes. <laughs> I could go off on a big tangent, but yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I, the thing I'm actually thinking is that that there's a two page spread in there with the death of the firstborn. Mm-hmm. The thing that I'm thinking, just the funny anecdote I'll relate is that when I contacted the Tate, which is where that watercolor resides. And I said, I, I want to print this in a book. They said, that's great. Here's the image, you know, here's the rights fee. And, and I said, I needed it larger. And so they sent me their large file and I said, no, I need it larger. And the guy wrote and said, how large is this book that you're printing? <laughs> and as, as someone who's held the book, you understand. And I told him the dimensions and he laughed and they wound up re-photographing it. Yeah. For me. It, well, I mean, it's, in, it's an, it is an incredibly large book, but the, uh, the quality of the images, like the quality, it made me, I was thinking about it the first time I opened it. I was like, how the hell did he possibly get photographs of this quality of this artwork but that's that, that's how it happened is i would i would say probably i mean i don't know like maybe 75% of what's in there are things that i physically had mm-hmm. or have and then the rest of it was just you know like the the apron that muka painted mm-hmm. uh, for his lodge just finding the people that had things and getting a photographer and getting, you know, whatever quality we could, the, the photographs of the jewelry, like every uh, image that I was finding, even in museum archives were really, really low resolution. Um, and something that, that just personally makes me a little crazy is when people pull internet JPEGs, to make an a book, book and it's all grainy and blocky and uh, yeah 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 that makes me crazy and too so, and it's funny because there's one guy who published a book uh and he used an image that i know he got from my website and i was like why didn't you just ask me like it was a guy's a friend of mine mm-hmm. like he, he just you know but it showed that he and his publisher just didn't care yeah. Like they just like meaning like why didn't you ask me for higher resolution? I would have hooked you up and but so to me the it's so important. Like I love looking at the originals and things like that's I, I don't know if I mentioned it while we were recording or not, but things like the image of the invisible college. Mm-hmm. Seen it all the time, but I've never seen it in that detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and so to have this, whatever it is, 12 by 17, 12 by 16 image of it, like it's, it's blown up like 600%. And if you have interest in studying that kind of imagery, you know, you can do it in such a meaningful way when you actually can read all the little text and. Oh, and it's good enough detail that you can look at it with a magnifying glass too. Like it's, it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. But I glad that you, appreciate that because that was that was the hardest thing of this entire process mm-hmm. was um i mean obviously the things that i physically had like when you're looking at catalogs or uh even like the photos like a lot of those uh big two-page spreads or old album and photos that i had from the 19th century and of course you can scan those and blow them up 
super, super large, but a lot of the, the artworks like the William Blake kind of stuff, um, it was specifically working with museums to get images that I could print large enough to do the gorgeous two page spreads. Yeah. That yeah, and so you uh, so this book the the one that I have the hardcover edition is sort of a limited edition, right? Like you kind of had a limited run of those. We we printed those in at the end of twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were extremely expensive, <laughs> much like the original Le Pater. They were extremely expensive to produce. The ribbed spine, all of the foil stamping, the gilt edges, like everything that we did to make it feel as close as possible to the original copy of Le Pater that I owned. Um, The catch with that is that it had to be an expensive book. Uh, And also they're massively heavy and unwieldy. And so for the paperback edition, um, we're reducing the size to 9 by 12. And uh, we're keeping a lot of the aesthetic bells and whistles. Um, but it's meant to be an infinitely more manageable size if someone doesn't have an oak library table upon which to... <laughs> <laughs> There, <laughs> I had to I had to keep the box and it came in so I could store it safely when I'm not looking. At yeah, it. yeah. I uh, have the hardest time fitting it on a bookshelf. Yeah, always, yeah. Who's the jerk that made this book? And of course, it was me. But I'm laughing. It's like I don't have anywhere I can put it. Yeah, you know when I when I moved into this uh, place, I, I'm I mean I have my I'm going to turn my camera so you can see i've got my library in here and when i first moved in here and i got all the bookshelves i was like oh i can finally customize all the shelves so i've got space for my tall oversized books and then this came along and now i'm (laughs) (laughs) so nine by twelve so the compromise is just if if you really really want to dig into the art Mm -hmm. then spend the money and get the hardcover and look at it I think the retail is $179, but it's think of it as taking a course and it's a steal. And then the, the retail on the soft cover is going to be 49. Um, but the idea there is that if you're an art student, if you're someone who wants a book to take with you on a trip or, you know, be able to read it without the help of three decks. so hopefully yeah hopefully there's use for both and i mean i i would you know it's funny because before this before we talked i pulled the book out because because i hadn't looked at it in so long and i i was laughing at how hard it is to read (laughs) (laughs) it's it it is but it's just unwieldy but it's beautiful right so you'll you make you make concessions yeah well the thing that i i did the two experiences that i had just with reading it were were number one that it was difficult to hold but the ability to explore the artworks 
uh, really stood out to me. Like, and this is, as, you know, revisiting it, not having looked at it for a couple of years kind of thing. And just, you know, for me personally, um, that, that might be like the most valuable, like the book isn't big for the sake of being big. The book is large so that if you want to study, if that's your interest, if you're like, I want to really get into the details on this, that you can do it. And that for me was the biggest thing. Like when you said how many copies of La Patera have you seen? Like maybe I've seen 20 in 25 years. Like it's not something that you, you know, 99% of the people who want to see it couldn't, no matter how right. much they wanted to. Yeah, that makes like, sense. I And I, and you know, it's, it's great that modern publishing makes it, um, feasible to get that kind of stuff out to people too like it's it's very much appreciated i'll tell you that's i I love kickstarter we've done like 56 kickstarters at this point Mm -hmm. one of the things that i love about this is we did the small exhibition catalog and people were really excited about it and it immediately created a structure where we could then say do you want to see this kind of a book? And people said they did. And we spent all the money on printing. And so, you know, you can't do that if you're a publisher. Like you can't, you know what I mean? Like you have Mm -hmm. to, but by the time you get into distribution and people making a profit. So the fact that we could literally put every penny into making the book is why that book is so dramatic. Um, so you have a Kickstarter for the paperback. Yes. And it's uh, going as of July 19th, and it'll be going for until... The third... Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, and so there will be, be a link to that Kickstarter in the show notes so that people who are listening can go check that out, or they could go to, what is it, lepater.com? Le- um, yeah yeah um because it i i do think that it's one of those books like we need more esotericists looking at it you know the there's there's so much crammed into those pages and there's there's just amazing stuff like even so i guess for those who are listening who don't know about Mucha's involvement in freemasonry he became a mason in uh i think 1919 in paris and then um was or maybe he became a Mason in 1899 in Paris, went back to the Czech Republic and helped restart a lodge there in the in the 1910s and then was sort of instrumental. Well, right or one, the first lodge. Oh, the first lodge. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I, it had been outlawed for like 200 something or. OK, OK. That makes I don't sense. Have right in front of me. But yeah, he, he started the first lodge. It yeah. was after World War One. They, the Czech Republic became democratic, and so they were able to uh, to have a, a lodge there. Mm-hmm. It was the first Czech-speaking lodge, and they were part of. Uh, they were connected to the Parisians, but yeah, the, yeah, the Grand Orient of France, I think. And then yeah. he uh, he also became a thirty third degree Mason and the Sovereign yeah. Grand Commander of the. Yeah, you know who was very excited about that? Who? The Nazis. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And so what happened, the Nazis came into the Czech Republic. Uh, 
the they considered the Slavs subhuman. And because Muka was such a prominent Mason, uh, he was one of the people that they targeted. And so they took him in for extensive questioning and he was very old and very feeble and they let him go after a few days, but he never recovered. So the the Nazis killed him. I mean, they really did. I mean, (sighs) it's, but it was because of the masonry. Like Mm -hmm. that was, that is undisputed that it was because he was a prominent Mason that they targeted him. Like that's, that's public, public knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, they killed um they killed something like 150,000 Freemasons, I think something like that. It was so weird to think about, isn't it? I mean like it, it just doesn't it it makes sense when you understand what they were afraid of, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I just mean in 2021 it just seems like you you can't yeah, contextualize that in the same way that that people would be I mean and even the fact that it was outlawed before that you know, it's mm-hmm. just well. That makes I mean, sense whole... too, right? Because the Freemasons in the Holy Roman Empire were kind of making trouble, and the Holy Roman Empire didn't collapse all the way until what, like eighteen forty-eight or something like that. The Czech Republic or the Czechoslovakia was part of the Holy Roman Empire before it sort of split up. Yeah, yeah. I just mean in, in, in modern times to, cause I didn't go too deeply into it in, in this book and also in my own education mm-hmm. because I stopped the research at a certain point, but I, the things like you're talking about were things that to me seemed insane from the 21st century perspective like the idea that it was so subversive and so volatile and mm-hmm. it yeah. doesn't it's like you think oh masons it's like oh yeah that's the vfw hall where the guys play bingo like you don't think of it as something that like that's not the place the nazis are going to go first you don't think of that like it just it's so different i it guess is. what i'm saying it really is i i totally agree it's it's strange to try to conceptualize it and try to understand why it was like that before but um you know it's well it's a rich tradition i mean i respect it immensely more after having done all this research i just mean that it's uh like again like the idea that muka died because he was a prominent mason is like if you'd asked if you ask anybody who knows Muka's art, that is not a part of the story that they know. Right, right. And it's not something you expect. I don't know. Yeah, so it's very, very fascinating. But he did, you know, just as a as a quick aside, one of the other things that's in the book, and so many of these aren't in any other book, is that he designed certificates and an apron and jewelry. Uh, and most people, even if people are super fans of Muka and have every book, they've never seen those things before. And to me, that was interesting that he was applying such a rich artistic knowledge to this thing that was so deeply personal. Mm-hmm. So there's a picture in the book of him in his 33, you know. Yeah, it's very regalia. He, look, he looks it's amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like what a great like last photo. Mm-hmm. I'd have to say, you know, even among Masons, um, you know, 
the the art style that Muka applies to to his Masonic work, you know, his uh, the pins and stuff that he's making, like it it has kind of this like esoteric Art Nouveau look to it, uh, which doesn't ever get replicated in Masonic pin design, and it's a it's a shame. Like that, I wish that more Masons could see that and be inspired by it. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I I don't have uh, the depth and breadth of that mm-hmm. education. But I definitely look at them and think it looks, yeah, I mean, they look magnificent. They do. Like, cause even in those, he's coded, you know, there's coded symbolism. Like, he's, uh, yeah. you know, I just, I don't know, I love it. It's that idea, there's that quote from The Little Prince, what is essential is invisible to the eye. And mm-hmm. I just love the idea, and Muka really embodied it with these, is that everything was so prominent and so invisible at the same time like uh, those 510 Le Pater books they were on like the, the originals were on display at the World's Fair in Paris like how many people looked at that and understood anything that he was trying to communicate oh, how many people just walked right by and were just yeah. like oh these are pretty and then just kept walking. exactly yeah and then you get through the degrees of, well, that's interesting. Why is that interesting? And mm-hmm. there's kind of that Gnostic idea of how far can you get without study, you know, and then you get into the interpretation and then you get deeper and deeper and you realize like, no, there were really specific reasons that he was using. And that was the biggest misinterpretation. I, I, I did the thing that really unlocked it for me was that I did meet someone who, um, you know, not to get too secret society about it, but it's someone who was, uh, let's put it this way. The guy has Yaka Burma manuscripts. Like the guy is, is, a, is a, a high level Mason. That is something that I will admit I'm moderately dismissive of when someone says something like that, but I'm in this guy's library and he's got like, I can't just the most incredible pieces of paper I can even describe like calf skin of, you know, things with like all kinds of cartography on it, original golden dawn manuscripts, like all of these things. And the last keys that I couldn't figure out, that I was like, is this just an artistic thing? And he would just ramble. He's like, no, this means this, and this is why. And so the thing that was probably most rewarding to me was knowing that ultimately everything that Muka did really was for a reason. You know, and like, and every book it says, oh, he just kind of made this up. It's like, man, to really be to have someone that educated, you know, mm-hmm. that had spent a half a century studying this stuff, tell me in extensive terms why certain things were used. Like that was like the final uh, final step for me in finishing this. And that's what made it, I think, the most rewarding because I felt like, you know, the TV show Lost? I, I do. I, I haven't watched show. the whole thing, but... Don't. It's terrible. It's so good. And then around season three, the DVD came out 
And one of the writers said that they were just leaving cliffhangers for another writer to figure out. And I was like, I was, I'm trying not to curse because I don't know who listens to this, but I was, I was so furious because I was hanging on thinking there was an arc here. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that an artwork could be such a complete and perfect and harmonious wheel that from the beginning to the end, back to the beginning in that circle, that every line, every bit of imagery, every word, that all of these things could be so well thought out is just, it shouldn't be rare in art, but it, it obviously deeply, deeply is. And uh, yeah, so the most I'd been looking. So the reason I mentioned Lost is because I'd been looking at this Mooka book for 20 years. And it was just a great ending to know that none of it was an accident. Like all the time that I had spent studying it, like there was a reward mm-hmm. in knowing the artwork was worth it. Well, I think that is an incredible uh, place to end the episode. Um, I just, I really want to thank you not only for producing the book and, and working to make um, a more portable and affordable version uh, <laughs> uh, available, but uh, just the work that you did in, in tracking down uh, Le Pater and making it um, available to anybody at all. Like, you know, it, it's great that you were able to take this passion and, uh, and share it with everybody and, I think it's going to bring a lot of enjoyment to people over the years in the future. So well done. I, so. I uh, you know, it, it, it meant a lot to me, even the parts that I didn't understand, mm-hmm. just the contemplation of them. Uh, you know, it, it, it made me a better person. It made me a more uh, observant person and every piece that I was able to figure out through research or any of that, um, and so, you know, I kind of the reason that I dedicated the book to my son is is kind of, as you were hinting at, like, I really think that the things that we can do that better us, better our place in the world and better our connections to other people, that that is kind of what the eternal cycle is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so hopefully, yeah, the idea of making the paperback is just to try to get more people uh into that state, you right, know, right. a lot of art students are, are reading about these Masonic ideas. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And so the book can be found at lepater.com. That's L E P A T E R.com. Right. That is. All right. Well, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for all of your work. And, um, I hope that the paperback, uh, is a success. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.